Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. We're talking today about uh, the topic we've entitled, Do Not Trust in Princes comes from a psalm, do not trust in princes and sons of men in whom there is no salvation. And we're recording this episode actually on January the 8th, which has now been two days since the storming of the Capitol building in, in Washington. And But but this episode, Father Jeffrey, is actually going to be released on the 1st of February, which will be, as you mentioned before the recording, fingers crossed, there will be a peaceful transition of power at that point in the United States. Um, and I, I think it's it's well worth us recording an episode about different Orthodox perspectives on political leadership. So I guess first, I'd like to just open it up in general and say, you know, what have been, um, yeah, what's been your reaction to some of the general political things going on in our society, or, or maybe even specifically in what happened with Washington? I think it's still very early days. I think it's good that you mentioned, you know, when we're recording this, because by the time our listeners are hearing this, there'll be at least that little bit more time to kind of absorb what's happened and to put some perspective on it to see how some of these, you know, very immediate events are going to play out over the longer term in history. You know, it, it we all grow up, obviously, having some sense that in the past there were important, climactic, you know, earth-shattering events that took place in history. And I don't know if you ever had this sense, but you know, what, what, what would they like to have lived through that? You know, it kind of comes to mind when you read history. And okay. to some extent, you know, we have been living over the last, you know, with the last few days for sure, and, and and certainly over the last few years through events that I think will be talked about for some time to come. There'll be history books a couple centuries hence that will, you know, we'll pick out some of the things we've seen on our 24-hour news screens, right? And they will talk about them in, in the context of whatever has come about, you know, as a result of this or, you know, through the process that all these things are kind of symptoms of or, or whatever. And I think that's a really weird thing, I think, to be in the moment, you know, and to, I mean, we have obviously some distance from the events just being in Canada and 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 not being you know, immediately implicated in what went on. But but nevertheless, we are in the the very time span of some something that probably is going to be talked about for some time. And and we don't know yet where it's going. Is this one of the kind of key moments in the decline of American hegemony in, in the world and, and certainly leadership on, on things like democracy and so forth? Certainly seeing some of the reaction from countries that the United States has 
historically, it's fair to be said, uh, lectured on democracy and human rights and, and things like that. And there was almost a kind of, you know, self-satisfied <laughs> response from the likes of Turkey or China or whatever to, to what went on in Washington. And, um, you know, so... Uh, we don't yet know exactly where this is going to fit, you mm -hmm. know, within the greater span of, of history. But it clearly will be somewhere there. You know, either it's mm -hmm. this is one of the markers of that decline, or whether this will mark a kind of, you know, descent from which you know the United States of America are able to kind of clamber back out. There's a lot of, you know, goodness and uh, giftedness and uh, capability within that nation. I mean, you could, it would be very unfair to, you know, cast this in very uh, dark terms, right? I mean, this is a, a nation of people who are, after all, uh, you know, striving for something that ultimately, you know, it may not completely match the gospel. And I think we'll be challenging the idea that it might, you know, throughout an episode like this one. But nevertheless, people are committed to certain aspects of justice and righteousness and, and so forth. And that has to be acknowledged. Not every empire, not every powerful nation has always had that as its goal. And so there's still, you know, there's much that could still be built upon there. So it may not yet represent the the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning or whatever, but uh, it, it's an important event nevertheless. And as I say, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it is viewed historically, you know, beyond this kind of very immediate time frame. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about, well, firstly, a little bit about the historical ways in which orthodoxy has been involved with political leadership. Uh, but I always want to keep in mind you know this this current U.S. situation in which there there is um, somewhat of an alliance between, let's say, evangelical certain certain branches of evangelical Christianity and um, kind of the the, the Trump uh, administration. Um, so you know, in, in times in Orthodox Christian history, the church was hand in hand with political leadership. We we think of you know Constantine and and the Byzantine Empire. We think of the Russian Empire, and yeah, like at times, uh, maybe you could speak to this. At times, it really seems that orthodoxy has not been better in terms of being in bed with the uh, the state than the you know evangelical Christians in the states are now with the Trump administration. Is that am I reading history too cynically, Father Jeffrey, or is there something there? No, it's interesting because a year or so ago, um, actually maybe it was a year ago this month, I was invited to go and speak. Um, at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto, which um, some listeners may know is is one of the Anglican colleges within the Toronto School of Theology, but it's um, it's the Evangelical Anglican College. And these days, you know, more than half of their students are just broadly evangelical; they're not actually in the Anglican or Episcopal Church. Um, and I was asked to go in and talk, uh, do a kind of dialogue with their with their dean, um, Bishop Stephen Andrews, um, about what it means to be evangelical uh, today. And, and if, from an Orthodox perspective, how do we view evangelical? Where would we see similarities and differences? And of course, beyond you know, commitment to scriptural gospel truth and things like that, which I, I did articulate, one of the things I said that put, put us in a similar kind of frame is that we have naively trusted in uh, civic authorities from time to time, that that evangelical streak that you've just 
mentioned, you know, the, the willingness to, to kind of go along with what are, you know, very clearly worldly oriented politicians, but who maybe speak the right rhetoric every once in a while or make sort of empty promises that they're willing to kind of go along with. You know, they've been kind of co-opted to a, what is a, a this worldly agenda, a, a political agenda that serves, you know, uh, interests that go well outside of what the gospel is all about, but because they've said the right words and usually about a very few key issues, right? It could be, you know, defense of the family, or it could be, you know, opposition to abortion or something, but th- they're willing to, for the sake of that, put everything else aside and, and get into bed, you know, with these politicians that, that Orthodox have done similar things by sort of saying, well, you know, sure, we don't agree with everything the emperor is doing. And yeah, you know, uh, you know, political assassinations and persecution, not so good. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, the disparity between rich and poor, not ideal from a gospel perspective, but look, he's funding the opening of churches or he's getting rid of the Muslim, you know, invaders or he's whatever. Um, And so for the sake of what is seen to be a good aspect of that sovereignty, earthly sovereignty of an emperor or whatever. We've, we've thrown our lot in with, with all of the, the, what those princes, those sons of men, as you referred to at the beginning, what they represent. And that's a very dangerous kind of undertaking. It's not to say you can't affirm that there is authority and law and order that is ordained by God on earth. You know, St. Paul refers to, you know, such things in his epistle to the Romans. And, you know, we go along with all that is godly about earthly authority. Uh, there's no problem with that. We're not absolutely from the get-go revolutionaries um, in terms of political, this worldly sense. We will oppose everything that is evil and unjust and hateful and so forth. But where earthly authority does align with, you know, just general good governance and peace, then, you know, we could accept some ex- aspects of it. But but for, for us to t- totally throw our lot in with earthly authorities, as we have done, and kind of uh, confused the church with the empire, as under Byzantium or the Russian Empire, or indeed, you know, other places and, and other parts of Orthodoxy have been guilty of this too. You think of Ethiopia with, you know, the Emperor Haile Selassie, who's probably the last Orthodox uh, ruler, you know, per se, that we've had. Um, you know, in, in human history, but, uh, you know, this has been a recurring, you know, temptation really of Christians. And it's one, I think we have to address, we have to kind of sort out properly how we can affirm what is good in earthly authority and systems and so forth, but also always have that critical stance that the gospel affords us where we, we're never, you know, there's good reason that the canons say that someone who is ordained to church ministry shouldn't have political office because to confuse the two is is really rather dangerous. And I think we've seen some of the outworkings of that recently in the United States. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it would be a lot easier if Orthodox theology or, or Orthodox tradition would tell us that it's just one or the other, right? It's it's either, you know what, you just got to be involved with politics and that's just the way it is, or to say, you know what, you just need to oppose it at all, you know, at all costs. You're always going to be uh, countercultural and subvertive and revolutionary. Um, I, I feel like it would be a lot easier if it was just black or white like that, but 
but one of the things with being orthodox is um, we tend to take the good, but there also tends to be some abuses that can happen there. One thing that I think about is icons, right? Uh, icons are a very beautiful, good, holy thing to use, but um, people can still abuse them as well. They can use them incorrectly or for bad reasons. And I feel like an orthodox approach to political leadership can have that too, where there is good that the church can do in its relationship with political leadership, but there's also abuses that can happen there as well. Yeah, that's an excellent analogy because in so many ways, orthodoxy, when you look at the the theology and the the you know every the substance that lies behind the approach to to doing things it really is a kind of royal path down the middle of extremes right and so um you know the final settlement around icons was uh, a middle path you know it was neither uh on the one hand those who opposed icons because of the you know, heretical tendencies that people had in, in using them. I mean, the, the iconoclasts were right about the abuses, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. that, we give them that much credit. And and so, uh, you know, when they saw people scraping the paint off icons and making it into tea because that would somehow give them magical healing properties or, or whatever, I mean, they were right to say this is, you know, an abuse and we need to decry that and so forth. But what they were wrong was, uh, in, in was in saying that you know get rid of all the icons right and on the other hand um you know the the iconodules are right that you know god has touched creation and therefore we can depict you know the saints and god himself in in paintings in frescoes and and so forth um but you know they were wrong to say you know that every opposition to this was uh, on false pretenses a lot of contexts in which that can become idolatry so the the orthodox position is actually right down the middle as it were and it and it balances neatly the concerns uh, of each side and so i would think that a, an orthodox approach to political engagement needs to do the exact same thing right because if you take these two extremes of you know complete an utter, you know, conviction that this is the way God's kingdom is going to come on earth. It's through earthly political powers. You need to join political parties. You need to seek elected office. You need to enact laws and so forth to kind of enact, you know, the, the kingdom here on earth, which was a little bit what, you know, Byzantium was trying to be, heaven on earth, right? This is what heaven looks like. Um, to the extent that um, our liturgy today picked up on that we we dress up in our liturgy wearing you know the the court wear of byzantine politicians right um our bishops and presbyters and deacons are all dressed like you would be in the court of justinian um and so that was about heaven on earth and let's recreate that let's put laws into place and let's build society in such a way that this is what jesus was talking about right and obviously that in its extreme form is completely against the gospel because our Lord himself, you know, pointed to a kingdom that was not of this world, right? But then to take the opposite approach of saying, well, if a kingdom is not of this world, we should completely ignore what's going on here. We should have no political engagement. We should at best kind of 
separate ourselves and form our own little societies that that ignore or abstain from the rest uh, of the world and we've seen you know this tendency uh in in some parts uh, of the church through history you could argue some parts of monasticism kind of took on that character but then you know more laterally you've got um you know the mennonites or anabaptist you know traditions that did that a little bit you know we won't get involved in um you know, in the army, we won't take political office. We, you know, we will abstain from society as, as much as we can and so forth. Well, that's a kind of equal and opposite error, right? Somehow we need to find that middle path of engagement in the world, but always from that critical stance that the gospel stands in judgment over the world. Because these two things are true. God has ordained the world with its earthly rulers in this world, in this age that's passing away. The the authorities are under God's sovereignty. And then the other thing is Jesus himself is the true Lord and King. So our ultimate allegiance is to that political statement that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Nevertheless, Caesar only rules because God allows him to. So both of those things have to be true at the same time. And that sets us up for a middle path that is complex and has to be rethought and re-engaged with on a constant basis. You can't just sort of establish a program or a party and then kind of go for it. You have to continually check against those two principles that we're not there just to destroy and rip down and, and, and overthrow in a political sense, because indeed the authority, the godly authority of earthly rulers is you know, where law and order and so forth are ordained by God. But on the other hand, all of them need to be subject to the true authority, which is of the one who is the coming one who will ultimately set everything right. And our job as kingdom bringers, kingdom bearers, is that we should be already reflecting that rule, the rule of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who will come in glory and who will judge every earthly kingdom and every human being on their works. And so we need to be already aligned with that program, which has absolutely political implications, right? About liberating the oppressed, bringing sight to the blind, feeding the hungry. And if we're not doing that, we are not living according to that rule. We talked a bit about church history. I'd like to turn now to to the scriptures, to the Bible. And it seems to me that, especially in the Old Testament, there is really a emphasis on the king being kind of God's anointed one, right? Um, that there is this one ruler who's put here and, uh, you know, Israel is God's people, that that Israel's the light on the hill, right? And we can see this kind of rhetoric being used in other countries. We can think of the United States, uh, this manifest destiny that we are the people through whom the world will be blessed, right? And, and, and um, so yeah, in in the scriptures you have this idea of the king being this anointed one, and and Israel being the holy people through whom the world will be blessed, and even to the point of uh, there's a church historian uh, Nestor the chronicler who was in uh, Cave and Rus uh, around the year uh, 1100 or so, and he wrote a history of uh, the uh, the the uh, Cave and Rus the the Slavic Christianity and. Uh, he traces the way that he tells the story is he traces the history of that church from Adam himself Hmm. and that uh, God was with the people of Israel. God then abandons the Jews 
to go to the Greeks, mm. right? And then you have the Byzantine Empire, and now God has abandoned the Byzantine Empire and has now come to uh, Kiev and Rus to, you know, and, and what is now the, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and, and Belarus as well. So um, that that is now where God is. And, and I guess my question is, is it inevitable that Christians who subscribe to the Bible as our scriptures have to submit to a vision of authority in which the ruler is sort of the, the, the anointed one of God, and we just got to go along with that. Does that make sense? I hope that question makes sense. It does. I mean, you can see how it's a tendency, and I, but I do believe it would be you know, squarely in the crosshairs of an idolatrous um, definition of things. Because I mean, even the very, from the very get-go about, you know, Israel getting a king, um, that was considered to be a condescension, you know, by God. Uh, he was meant to be their, their true king. And it's, I think the scriptures are doing this over and over again through, through the, the scriptural texts of the Old Testament, but then also into the apostolic writings of the New Testament. Over and over, there's this articulation that, yeah, indeed, there are earthly authorities that, that exist. The world would not function if it didn't have order. And, and indeed, I mean, the successive empires that come along, uh, you know, throughout the ancient Near East, and then, you know, through invaders like, you know, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and so forth. I mean, uh, they bring order that they, that it's under their sovereignty that anybody can, can kind of live and exist. And we still have this reflected in, in our liturgy, right? Where we pray for this kind of uh, peaceful governance by rulers that I mean, that they're there and they they assure a kind of space in which we can live our life as God wants us to live. I mean, that's ultimately what a ruler should do, right? Provide enough kind of oversight and protection that we can focus on what we're supposed to focus on. I think that's the kind of structure of, of that kind of earthly authority. Now, obviously, rulers go too far and they start to interfere with what we're doing. And that's where that critical piece, you know, comes in. If we're being told that, you know, we have to live a particular way, I think, you know, for example, of the way that uh, the the apartheid uh, regime in South Africa was using some of these scriptural verses to talk about God's anointed authority and so forth. And you have to obey your rulers and everything to justify the segregation of society and the oppression of blacks in, in South Africa, right? That clearly is overstepping the mark of what God's ordained earthly authority would be about. They're supposed to be there to protect people so that everybody can thrive and we can have this movement of, of people towards the kingdom. Well, if people are being enslaved or oppressed, that's not what earthly authority is meant to be about. So it's it's gone you know, too far in, in that sense. So, so when we say, you know, God allows or permits or places these earthly, you know, authorities to, to step from that to God anoints uh, certain kinds of rulers or, or authorities. I, th I mean, the, the word in, in the Hebrew, obviously, there is the word Messiah, right? And in Greek, it's Christ. Um, and ultimately, we have to understand that the only authority anointed by God is Jesus Christ. Uh, and David, for example, anointed 
as a kind of son of God is a symbol or an icon of the coming Messiah, of the true Messiah who is going to encapsulate and sum up and fulfill all of Israel and God's purposes. And that's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the the one and true Kyrios, so not Caesar, but Jesus is Kyrios, the one and true Messiah, so not the earthly Israelite king, but Jesus himself, who, who kind of sums up all of that. So everything else is secondary. Everything else is, is a kind of sign or foreshadowing of that. I think it's really dangerous then after Jesus to start acclaiming others as anointed. Um, you know, we are all, in fact, anointed at our baptism, you know, because we are putting on Christ, right? But to the sense that which you could say that, uh, an earthly authority is anointed by God after Christ. I think that's very dangerous theology because Christ is the true Lord, King, anointed Messiah. And you know, to suggest that anyone else or any other nation could take that role, uh, I think would be tantamount to idolatry. I think you'd have to be very, very circumspect and careful in your language if you were going to start to kind of refer to that. That said, I know that Christian kingdoms have employed you know the imagery of the old testament about anointing kings and so forth and this kind of language when they've had you know uh, the ceremony of crowning right so this happened you know in england uh and in the british isles it happens in russia it happens everywhere where people have been anointed as monarchs that that kind of language you know comes to the fore but it's dangerous and i think it like we said about icons and there's a perfect analogy used because you know an icon can be an idol it's not necessarily not an idol right it's it can be an idol if it's if it's used in the wrong way so if we use this language around authority and earthly rule uh, as god's anointed program it's idolatrous if it in any way replaces jesus as the kind of Mm. entire focus of that it can only ever be a sign a a kind of type really of what we're really supposed to look at and i think if you look carefully i mean i think the anglican service for example for the anointing of a a monarch for the crowning of a monarch uh, tends to do that i mean there's 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 a way in which it's used and then relativized um it might be worthwhile at some point looking at texts like that. And of course, in the mm-hmm. Byzantine context, we have also the services for the, the anointing of a, of a monarch. And I, you know, maybe they go too far, but I think that they're also trying to relativize it ev- at every you know, stroke that, you know, yes, God is involved here, but this is, but the tr- this is as a symbol and a sign of God's true rule in and through Jesus Christ. So that's the part that we often miss. And when we read history and we kind of, you know, applaud Byzantium or Holy Russia or whatever, if we're not relativizing all of that in, in terms of Christ's true rule, then then we've missed the plot. So we're getting close to the end of the public episode here. We are going to continue this discussion on our private podcast at Patreon. And I think we're going to talk a bit about what I would like to talk with you there, Father Jeffrey, is uh, first of all, our takes on the political situation right now, how we feel about it, um, and and everything there, um, getting more specific with applying some of these things that we've been talking about in the public episode to actual political situations in our current day. I also want to talk about voting and and um, kind of orthodox perspectives on voting as well. Um, and we're also going to be reading a little scripture in the uh, extended episode in the uh, Patreon 
episode as well. So if you want to hear our responses to that, go over to pryingpriest.com slash support and go to Enacting the Kingdom and sign up there. Um, but for the rest of the episode, we got about four minutes or so. Father Jeffrey, I think it would be fun to actually read Psalm 2. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so this is the second poem in the second song, Psalm in the Book of Psalms. And it's all about... Um, the basically like an inauguration of a king. Um, and I think, you know, especially us Orthodox, we tend to, you know, we've, it's been forced into us to really see Christ in these things, right? These Psalms are put in, especially at um, Christmas time, right? The coming of the king, um, this Psalm is used. But I, I want to read it right now on, on the podcast and to try and try, to try and read it and not see Christ in it. And, and then how, like to see how easily this can be taken and abused. Hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll just read it and we can respond to it. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and trembling, with trembling, kiss his feet, or he will be angry and you will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. That was my dramatic reading. Very good. So yeah, it seems like it, I can easily see how you can take this and apply it to the inauguration of an earthly ruler and to say, you better be on my team or else we're coming after you. Well, yeah. And the fact is all of this, um, I mean, you you mentioned that this is taken up into the story of God's incarnation in Christ uh, and that's true of all of the passages that that point to Christ, that they were first and foremost about earthly fulfillment in in human rulers, right? Uh, you know, even the virgin shall conceive and bear bear a son. Um, a passage in in Isaiah that, that with all the verses that surround that, that I mean, it's my favorite part of of the Orthodox liturgical year. Probably the God is with us um, from Great Compline, uh, which you know for us just resonates with the incarnational reality of God with us, of Emmanuel. But that was all first and foremost in the 8th century BC about fulfillment in history in the day of of the prophet Isaiah and the the kingdom, you know, then. And so we have to, I think, as you say, you know, set aside to get the kind of original context here, to understand how people were, were thinking about these things, look at, you know, how... There, there, there was a real attempt uh, to to make this work, you know, to make this work in in human terms, in in political terms uh, of this world. But the other message that we get, you know, in reading across all of these texts and so forth, is that 
it was impossible. You know, um, even at its best, Israel and the kingdom and but take I mean, King David is probably, you know, the, the absolute height of, of all of that. I mean, it just, it never, it never worked. It, it was not successful. What, what's even reflected here in this psalm, you know, never took place. This is aspirational and hopeful and prophetic and utterly impossible without God himself coming to fulfill it, right? So, I mean, there is only one way ultimately to read the scriptures, and that is that we've tried it in human terms, you know, and even if you said human terms subject to the ultimate authority of God, as this psalm does, right? If As long as you do this according to God's purposes, it will work, right? But no one ever whether in Holy Russia or Byzantium or ancient Israel, has ever been able to establish an earthly heaven on earth, you know, in the way that we're looking to the the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ in its fullness of heaven and earth joined together in reality, God ruling with his people. That is just not possible without God himself as the king. And that's the whole thrust of the scriptures, right? And so, yeah, there's a real temptation to keep going back and saying, well, we'll try it again. It didn't work before, but it'll work now. We didn't know what we, we then, what we know now. And, you know, I think the, the scriptural import here is that it's just not going to work. You cannot do this without God himself being the king. And, uh, you know, everything else has to be subject to that. So no matter what we do or set about doing, we have to bear that reality in mind. And that's the part that we just keep forgetting. You know, that somehow we think we, we have enough of a program or a kind of guidebook from God about how to do it. And we can set this all up by ourselves and, and run the show. It just doesn't work. Even the very best of attempts at this have failed. And so... And so Christmas, you know, and so God is with us, Emmanuel himself. It points directly to that in its very inability to fulfill that which it promises. And so it would be wrong to go back and pluck these verses out now and sort of say, well, this is referring to, you know, such and such an earthly ruler, when in fact it only ever points to the failure of human beings to do this, except the human being who is God himself incarnate. That's the one in and whom this is fulfilled. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.